Good morning, church. It's good to be able to be together in worship this morning. I love this time for us to gather in the name of Christ in holy assembly. This weekend has been a full weekend for many of us at the church. Yesterday, we celebrated the life of our brother Lou, who recently passed away. He's home and welcomed with open arms by his loving father. Later today, two of our church members are getting married. We get to celebrate Spencer and Carly started their lives together. What a wide range of emotions for one weekend. But that's life in the body. We get to mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. We don't do life in isolation, so we don't have to weep by ourselves and we don't have to celebrate by ourselves. I was just reminded again through this weekend of full of ups and downs and emotions we hold in tension of the goodness of God and the goodness of doing life together in the body. We have to weep together. We get to celebrate together. But we don't do it alone. Amen? Amen. This morning we're continuing in our series, The Gospel of Luke, and we've come to one of the most famous passages of the Bible. And there's something about these parables that we read that resonates with people. And I love this passage of scripture so much because it presents so many attributes of God in a simple to understand manner. And Jesus taught in parables often. A parable is, is, is a tale about a simple, common subject to illustrate a more profound, valuable, moral lesson. In other words, a parable is a story from normal, everyday life that is used to teach a deeper meaning. And I want us to dive into this parable, these three parables, which is actually just one parable. And I want us to just spend some time with it. I don't want to go into it as deeply as often cases you would in the past because I believe most of you guys have probably heard many messages and heard this parable before. So I just wanted us to look at it in a different way. But today we, we started by talking about one lost sheep out of a hundred. And the shepherd, he was saying it's a known thing, that there's one lost sheep, it's a known idea, that the shepherd will be like, 99 sheep, stay here. And he can go look for the other one. And when he finds it, I love this imagery, he says that he carries it on his shoulders. Which I don't know why you would do that. I'd be like, just come back, sheep. Maybe the sheep doesn't want to come back. Or maybe the sheep is just weird. I don't know. But the image is, he puts it on his shoulders and carries the lost sheep back. And then celebrates. Calls everyone to rejoice. I just, what a weird phone call. Hey, Lawrence, I found my sheep. Oh, yay. <laughs> then there's a woman who had 10 silver coins but loses one. She searches like crazy for the missing coin. She sweeps the whole house, it says. And then when she finds it, she celebrates, which is another weird phone call. If you called your neighbors, be like, hey, I found my missing coin. Oh, okay, yay. <laughs> but that's how the angels help them celebrate over one sinner who repents. They celebrate. They throw a party. And this word celebrate, guys, I want you to understand, it's a celebration. It's a party. Then the prodigal son story. Where the younger son goes to his father and asks for his share of inheritance. Total slap in the face. Basically says, Dad, I'd rather have your money than you. The son takes this money, squanders it on wild living. The Bible says wild living. Which we don't know what that means except later on the older son says prostitutes. So he wastes his money. He goes off to Vegas. He goes, does what he does. 
but then the son quickly becomes destitute. So poor, in fact, that he goes to the lowest of lows for his culture. He goes out to feed the pigs. Mind you, pigs were so dirty, it was so unclean, they, they wouldn't even eat them, let alone be the ones who have to take care of the dirtiest, most unclean. This was the lowest of the low that you could go to. And he's out there, and he's seeing what the pigs are eating, and he's jealous. You don't get any lower than that. And he realizes that even the lowest servant in his father's household lives better than this. So he formulates this apology, crafts it, practices it, I'm sure, over and over and over again, and starts his trek back home. And as the son's almost back home, the father sees him. And he runs to him. And mind you guys, I don't know many fathers of that age who would run now. But especially back then when you're wearing robes, you don't really run. It's just an awkward thing when you wear robes to run. But he did. He didn't care about propriety and awkwardness. He ran. And the father runs to his son and grabs him, hugs him, brings him in close and kisses him. The son tries to apologize, but the father won't even have it. He says, take my robe, take my ring. What that literally says is that take back all identity. The ring symbolizes his family identity. Take it all back. You're my son. Let's celebrate. But the older son becomes bitter. Stays out of the celebration. The father goes to plead with him. The older son rants about how unfair it was, the whole thing. I mean, he did everything right, but he doesn't get these parties, he doesn't get the celebration like the son who did everything wrong. How could you take back the son? He, he wasted everything on prostitutes. Dad, what are you thinking? And the father says, son, you're always with me. And everything I have is yours. And we have to celebrate because this brother of yours was dead, but he's alive again. So here's this parable that Jesus told, this one story, and he tells it for a reason. He tells it for a meaning. He tells this parable. He didn't just pull it out of the air and say, it's time to tell a fun story. It's in response to something. If you look at verses one and two, it says all these tax collectors and these sinners, all these big, outwardly messy people are drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the people who knew the Bible, who knew the way to do things, knew the law, they're, they're grumbling. They're saying, I don't get this, I don't understand this. Why does Jesus keep eating with, which this idea of eating with has more of a connotation, not just like a one-time meal, but more friendship, of relationship. Why does he keep being friends with these people? I mean, what kind of, the, the scum of the earth, as, as they would have thought them to be, how could he be friends with them? And so Jesus gives this parable to say, you don't know who I am. And I don't think you know who God is. Because God pursues and chases after and relentlessly hunts down sinners. There's a title that I once heard of God that I learned a while back. I don't know where it came from. I just heard it one time. I don't know if it was in seminary or somewhere. I thought it was cool. Some people called God the hound of heaven. He relentlessly pursues. He's like a hound hunting the sent out. He won't quit until he found you. And I love that imagery. God pursues. He doesn't sit back and just hope and wait that you'll come back. He goes after his people. And we see this over and over again in the Old Testament. He sent prophet after prophet. He finally sent his son. He pursues. 
And that's the message that Jesus is saying with this simple parable. He's telling these religious leaders of the time, guys, you have no idea who God is. I don't know how you missed this. In all your reading, and all your understanding of the Old Testament, you completely missed this. God is the hound of heaven. He pursues sinners. You missed it. But secondly, this parable doesn't just show us that he's a pursuing God, but it shows you that God has something that he finds extremely valuable. I mean, why do you search for anything if you do? I mean, the only time if I search for anything if it has value, right? Your willingness to search for something is always connected to the degree that thing is valuable for you. Like, I lose things all the time. I lose change and pens, socks, water bottles. I don't know how I lose socks, but I never have any socks. I constantly lose, I don't take those socks off in weird places either. It's just my house, but somehow I don't have socks. It's weird. I constantly lose stuff, that is, and it doesn't usually bother me, right? I mean, in my old age now, if I drop a coin, I often think to myself, is it worth pe- bending down to pick it up? Right? I mean, a penny, I don't, I don't even look at it, right? A quarter, I might think about it. Nickel and dime, I'm like, okay, I'm done. It's good. I used to not bend down for nickel and dime, but nowadays I'm like, eh. It's just not worth it to me anymore, right? The value of something you're willing to, you're willing to search more for things that you value more, right? My son Josiah had this teddy bear that he had since he was born. He has a really creative name for the teddy bear. It's called Teddy, so really creative. And this teddy was a vital part of his life, and it was a must-have when he used to go to sleep. One day, our family came home from vacation, and we couldn't find Teddy. We looked, and I mean searched like crazy people, right? We, we, must, have, I, 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 we must have searched everywhere in the house, even to the point where like, places where like, I'm like, gee, there's no way Josiah could have put that teddy there. Just like, search there anyway. Like, top of stuff, and like, inside cushion. We looked everywhere for Teddy. We're like, okay, we realized it's not our house. It must be where we stayed. We stayed at a friend's house, uh, on a beach house for vacation. So we called the owner of the house, who let us stay there. And so she said the cleaning people searched the house for us. Couldn't find Teddy. We were heartbroken. So we searched the house again. For like the 50 millionth time. Even though we were sure we left it at, probably at the beach house. But we searched the house again. Everywhere looking for Teddy. We placed such value in Teddy that we spent hours, and mind you, for me, to spend hours searching for something, that's a big deal. <clears throat> well, we got a call from the owner of the house. And she was so moved by our searching. She was so moved that she said, you know what, I'm going to go myself to the house and go look for it. So she went and she searched the whole house over and she said she found Teddy. Praise God. Uh huh. <laughs> She overnight mailed Teddy back to us. Whatever amount it costs, she overnight, and we're like, we'll give you whatever it costs. Get it here now. We got Teddy back. And boy, let me tell you, talk about celebration. Gina and I and Josiah were like, we celebrated. Because there's so much value, because we knew Teddy at that point was irreplaceable. The reason, by the way, we knew that was because we tried to buy multiple copies of Teddy. Couldn't find it anywhere. Right? Am I right? We, I mean, we searched all over the internet. Even we asked the person who originally bought Teddy for us, where she bought it. We went to that store, still couldn't find it anywhere. We wanted, so it was irreplaceable. You search for things that are valuable. 
You put whatever effort into it if it's that valuable for you. Don't miss what this parable is telling us. That yes, we're a lot more messed up than we think we are. We're a lot worse than we probably think we are. We're a lot more rebellious than we think we are. But this parable means that you're also a lot more valuable than you think. This parable is saying that you are the treasure of God. You are the one that he left everything for. What other explanation do we have for the fact that God came to this earth and lived and died, that he had something of extreme value that he wanted? Do you hear me? Some of you, and I, I say this gently, some of you are in this room, some of you are here, and you've been told that you have no value. Maybe you've been abused verbally, physically, and the lie that you create is that you feel worthless because of what's been done to you. And you just need to know that what this parable is saying is your value is not dictated by what has been done to you. Others of us, we try to draw value from the kind of our circumstances around us. And this parable is saying that your value is not dictated by your circumstances. Sometimes we try to draw our value from how we feel. And if you struggle with depression, depression make, might make you feel worthless. And your value is not dictated by how you feel. And let me tell you guys, I need to hear this. Your value is not dictated by what you have or have not done this week or month or year of your life. That's what the two sons struggled to believe. Both sons believe the lie that their value comes out of what they have done or not done in their family, right? The younger son, did you hear the reasoning behind his apology? He says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. It sounds good, but what he's saying is I'm not valuable anymore because I've messed it all up. He's assigned his value according to his performance, and his father stops him and says, don't say that. That's not who you are. That's not your value. You're my son. The same thing happens with the older son, though. The older son says, I'm valuable because I obey, because I'm so good. That's why I'm valuable. And in verse 29, the father won't let him say that. He says, all that I have is yours, and it's always been yours. It's not because you're good. And what this parable is saying at the beginning, I want you to see over and over again, is that your value comes not from what you've done or haven't done, not from what's been done to you, not from how you feel, not from your circumstances. Your value comes from whose you are. And the Lord says, you are mine. And that's your value. Value is always measured by what you're willing to sacrifice to give. And how much does the Lord value you? He sacrificed the most precious gift he could possibly have, which is the blood of his own eternal son. I don't know a better explanation of why in the world Jesus took on flesh than that he deeply treasures you. He thought you so valuable that he delights to win you back, which means he delights to forgive and he delights to save and he loves to embrace messy people. That's who he is. Do you see that? Do you see that what Jesus is saying in response to religious leaders, not understanding why Jesus is hanging out with sinners, is that Jesus loves sinners. Again, the context in verses 1 and 2, Jesus just teaches out of thin air. He's responding to the wrong attitudes from the religious leaders about who God is and his character. They're confused. They can't figure out why this community of people that keep following Jesus is so messy, so sinful. They just can't make sense of it. 
And so Jesus tells these parables to tell them who he is and who the God is. But I want you to notice the rhythm of the parables. There's a lost sheep and it's found. There's a lost coin and it's found. There's a lost younger brother and found. And there's a lost older brother. Didn't realize he was lost though. And was he found? She's still outside the party. And why is the elder brother lost? Because he can't own the fact that he's lost. That's why he's lost. He can't own the fact that he just needs grace, he needs his father's free love. The elder son is all about his performance, and Jesus is pushing forward this fact that the only way into the party is to admit on our unworthiness. You see, Jesus is talking to the elder brothers. He's pursuing them as well. I once heard a sermon or a lecture, I don't remember which, and I don't remember who said this, but someone said, why do you shirk being a sinner? It's a wonderful thing to be a sinner. All the promises of God are for sinners and sinners only. The parable is really saying it's bad to be lost, but it's worse to be lost and not know it. You hear that? For the first time I say that, and I want to say over and over again, that I am a big sinner. And here's what's amazing is when you identify yourself as a struggling sinner, it means Jesus wants to be with me. That he pursues me. That he chases after me. If we will identify ourselves as a sinner this morning, if we admit the things we are ashamed about, and guys, I'm hearing me very well. I, I'm not saying that Jesus wants you to do those things. I'm not saying, oh, I should be, yeah, I'm a sinner. I mess up all the time, woohoo! That's not what I'm saying. Does Jesus love the sins that you commit? No. But does he love you with those things? Yes. And that really does mean we can look up and say, Lawrence, you don't understand, I yelled at my kids this morning before I got here. I I lost my temper at them, I loved them. And Jesus says, I love people who yell at their kids. Yeah, Lawrence, but I fall asleep during every sermon. (laughs) Jesus says, I love people who fall asleep during sermons. And some of you might be saying, oh, I know, I, you guys act like I don't know. I know who falls asleep. I'm just saying. And mind you, this is not condemnation on you because I'm pretty guilty of that too. All right? But my excuse is I have to sleep at me. So I'm just saying. What about if you're a minister of the gospel and sports center captivates your heart more than the Bible does sometimes? Jesus says, I love ministers who love sports center sometimes more than the Bible. What about if you struggle with lust and greed and ambition and anger? And he says, I love people who struggle with all that. That's who I am. This is it. If you will identify yourself as a big sinner, you realize that Jesus wants to be with you. That's who he is. Which means that our second response after identifying ourselves as sinners should be to repent and see joy. It's this constant theme of joy that makes the heavens ring out. He says this two times, but the third time's he gives you this visible party of what happens when you repent and see joy. It makes the heavens ring out in joy. That's what brings joy before the angels, is when a sinner, when a lost person is rescued. And I used to think this is only about non-Christians, but this is even about Christians. Every time even a Christian repents, a sinner is repenting, and it ignites joy in heaven. That's amazing. So much that he compares it to an unbelievable party that was heard in the streets. 
I think that what that means, our response, if you're a Christian, there needs to be a real humility with the joy about you because the reason we are right with God is not because of our performance, but because of who he is and because of his love. And that makes all the difference. I'm telling you that if you ground what God thinks of you or your acceptability before God, if you ground in anything about you, whether it's your sincerity, your prayer life, your morality, or how you feel, you will never have true joy. You can't throw a party. You'll be like the older brother, always angry at everybody else that, that they haven't gotten it right. Martin Lloyd Jones, Martin Lloyd Jones, uh, Jones, the old great preacher, he said, you can always tell the difference between a moral and religious person and a real, a real Christian based on how they answer this one question. Are you a Christian? He said, if you ask a moral religious person, that person will say, are you a Christian? They'll actually get mad and say, well, of course I am. How dare you ask me? You see, because by you asking, they have to look right. They have to be right. And you threaten them with that question. But you see, if you ask a Christian, are you a Christian? His response should be, yeah, I know. Isn't that ridiculous? <laughs> me? God loves me and saves me? Wow. Those people can throw a party because they realize Jesus had an incredible mercy on us. And you can actually enjoy his love. And you can begin to obey him. Not because it makes God love you anymore but because it helps you enjoy his love better. My people, I pray that you're hearing this message because I'm gonna get very real here. I believe most churches in America are jam-packed with older brothers. Do you hear me? Now I'm gonna say this, we older brothers. We older brothers believe that we are something good and the crazy, bad decision-making others don't really belong here until you start looking and acting like us. Do you hear that? Can I tell you something? Our hearts should be for this sanctuary to be filled with wild people who've made poor decisions. With tax collectors and prostitutes and outcasts. Not for us to see how comfortable we should be in here or how comfortable it is to bring people who look like us and act like us together, but for people who realize more and more that they need Jesus. I want you to get something. I got this next little bit from Tim Keller. In all the other stories that Jesus tells us in chapter 15, someone goes out and finds the lost thing. Except for when the younger brother goes out. Right? Somebody goes out and finds the sheep. Somebody goes out and finds the coin. How come nobody went out to find the younger brother? Because in those days, it was the older brother's job. Because in those days, it was the older brother's responsibility. He should have done what, what he didn't. It was his job to represent his father, to be the young one, strong enough to go out on that journey, represent his father, and go get the younger brother. It was his job, his responsibility, but he didn't do it. He refused to go out and find his younger brother. He refused to say, Dad, your love is so great that I will go back and find my brother so he realizes what he is walking away from. Why does Jesus give us a final story with a flawed, sinful elder brother? I think because he's asking us to yearn and long for a perfect elder brother. One that we have. It's what Jesus really did, right? We have ruined ourselves in sin. We think that other things are more exciting than God. We run from him, and Jesus says, Dad, I'll go get them. I'll go get them and remind them that your love is better than anything else. And so he leaves everything 2,000 years ago, and he goes to the cross at great cost to himself. 
And on the cross, he becomes helpless, he becomes lost, he becomes alienated from his father as he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he's taking our place so he can bring us in so that we can be with the father forever, so he can bring us home to an eternal party of joy. That's the big final response Jesus is pushing for. He's better than you think. He's not disappointed in you. He's not frustrated with you. He loves you. We're called to be the elder brothers like Jesus was. To be like him and then go get our younger brothers. Do you hear that? Do you hear that? My people, we're not here to gather together in a church body and in a building to be on a pleasure boat or a pleasure cruise. We're here to be a fishing vessel. We're not here to come together on a Sunday to be a country club or a social club that gathers together and says, hey, we feel good about ourselves. We're here to be the ones that go after our younger brothers. And the problem is, can I just be real with you, is we care more about our personal preferences than we care about the Father's love, what he's passionate for. Do you hear that? We care more about us being comfortable we care about more about our status than we do about the younger brothers who squandered away because we think, can we just be real, we think to ourselves, they wasted it. Why should we go after them? But our Father's heart, the Father that we love, the Father that we did nothing to deserve His love, the Father that we love says, I love the younger brother. Won't you go after them? Won't you represent me and go? And can I say this as a church, as a people, as Waypoint Church, I want to be that church that says, yeah, Dad, we love what you love. We'll go after the younger brother. We will love them too. I'll end with this. There's a story of a missionary that I heard of. Uh, he went to this country and he was really passionate about ministering to the outcasts. He really, in particular, ministered to a large prostitution business that was happening. Now, as he was preaching forgiveness and free forgiveness of sins, the typical message that we would often go and preach the gospel to, he was preaching so much that even he had his legs broken by the local uh, gang, you know, the people leader who ran into the prostitution ring. He started getting frustrated because the people weren't listening. They said, no, you, you don't understand. I, I'm, I'm too bad. Even my family won't forgive me. And things like that. He finally started changing his tune after he, he studied this, these parables. And he started saying this instead. He said, your heavenly father chose you. Your father wants you. He, he's running after you. He's pursuing you. He didn't just preach forgiveness. He actually chose that he, God is choosing you. He's loving you. That he, he, he's chasing after you in the midst of all that you've done. So then all of a sudden these, these prostitutes started coming. They started being converted. They, they started getting the heart of God that is expressed here in Luke 15. They just needed to be told that they were valued, that they were wanted. They didn't believe it. Nobody else ever showed them that they had any value. The Lord of the universe can have anything that he wants. He can be anywhere that he wants. He wants to be with you. That's what this passage is saying. And it's not what you long for. Isn't that what's celebrated this morning? This really is an invitation for the first time or for the thousandth time to realize your Heavenly Father has more grace than whatever sin you may have committed. 
He's bigger and his love is better and he loves repentance. If you turn to him this morning for the first time and for the thousandth time, it will ignite a party in heaven. Luke really does say that you you have certainty about how the Lord of this universe feels about you. Do you see it? He loves you. He wants you. He enjoys you. He's not tolerating you. He values you. And that's an invitation to repent. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your love is so pursuing, that you're the great hound of heaven, that you even come after sinners like me. And our testimony, our praise is this, God, that you are so loving that you pursued me and that you sent your son. You valued me so much and you sent the most precious gift that the elder brother came for us, came for me and made a way so that there's a party with you. And so God, may we no longer, may we learn from this parable and no longer be like this older brother in this parable, but may we be the older brother that Jesus was. And we go after our younger brothers with passion and with love because we know how valued we are. We know how valued these other people are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. It's the first Sunday of the month, and here at Waypoint Church, we are joined together with our Christian sisters and brothers throughout the world um, on a regular basis to partake in what's called the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion. And um, for this morning, I want us to take some time to continue to reflect on our own heart on our own, where we are in this story. Um, I want to thank Erica for her confession, for leading us in a time of confession. And we try to, the first Sunday of the month, we come together for corporate confession. And that's very intentional. We say that there's, there's kind of three main elements that we see in the, as the Lord's Supper is presented to us. One is confession, confessing our sin to God and, and receiving his grace and his forgiveness. The other one is it's a family meal. It's coming together as a group. I wish we could sit at a table and we, we have fellowship dinners. We have community groups during the week. So you, you get to experience that. But it's a, it's a family meal. And it's also a time of remembrance. A time to come and remember the sacrifice, the broken body and the blood that was shed so that we could be reunited with our Father. So it's good news. It is a, a meal for Christians. Uh, if you are not a follower of Jesus and you, and you don't come to the table, that's okay. If, if you have questions after the service, there'll be people with yellow lanyards. You can walk up to Pastor Lawrence or myself and talk to us or, or in, anybody in the, in the room, the person who brought you here. We, we want you to know that we can pray for you. We can talk to you about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You may feel unworthy and you may feel like I am not accepted by Jesus, but, but you are. All of us come humbly and say, we're broken people. If, 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 if you look deep inside your soul, all of us have brokenness. All of us can't even live up to our own standards that we set. The things that we expect other people to do, we don't even do for ourselves. But God in his grace and his mercy has forgiven us. And this table is a representation of that. So as we confessed earlier, I want you, to, I want you guys to just... 
Take a deep breath and breathe in the forgiveness that you have in Christ, that we are forgiving people. We're going to remember that. It says in, in 1 Corinthians, um, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup. And he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Uh, Here at Waypoint Church, we practice something called intinction. If if the servers could come up, our community servers, um, we practice something called intinction. So the servers are going to come up and they're going to grab bread and a juice. And uh, what you'll do is is you'll walk forward. Um, James Antonio. You guys will, will walk forward. The folks over there will come to this station. The folks here will come to this station right here. Um, and you're going to take the cracker. It will be handed to you and, and proclaim that this is the body of Christ broken for you. And you'll take the crack, cracker. and You can just lightly dip it in the cup. You can eat it immediately. You can take it back to your seat. I wish we had a bigger altar up here and you could kneel here. I mean, if you want to, you can. God, we're not stopping. There's not a ton of space. You can take it back to your seat and take some time to reflect. But just remember that this is the meal that God gave us, that our Savior gave us, and we're going to partake it together. So at this time, if you can uh, partake in the meal.
please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the body that was broken for us and the blood that was poured out and shed and the new covenant we have in your blood that you died but you rose again and you rose to new life and we are risen to new life with you. We thank you that we are part of a new covenant, a new reality, a reality that no matter where we are on the younger brother, older brother spectrum, that you are, you love us, you called us, and you're faithful, and you're with us, and you want us to turn and repent and confess our sins, and you forgive us, and we get to walk in that freedom and that forgiveness. We thank you for that. We thank you for this table, and may we keep coming back and each, each time we take this meal, God, may we remember that you love us, you called us, you're with us, you gave us your body, you gave us your spirit. And one day you'll come back and make all things right and new. And, but until that day comes, comes, God, we thank you for this body and, and for your spirit and for this meal. And I just pray you go before us as we trust you with each day. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.